Well, we're in a series that we're calling Unstoppable, talking about what God's been doing through his church for over 2,000 years and digging into the Bible to find out how can we get in on what God is doing? Because I hope you understand God is still doing things today. He's on the move. It's just a question of whether or not we're going to get in on what he's doing. And to get our arms around this, we're going to dig into the book of Acts some more. We're going to dig into the book of Acts some more. And here's why. Because the book of Acts is a fast-moving record or account of how the church and this message of the gospel began to spread like wildfire all over the Roman Empire in just 30 short years after Jesus rose from the dead. But here's what you're going to see today in our passage. In this chapter, we're going to walk through Luke, who is the author of Acts and was Paul's traveling companion. Luke hits pause. He hits pause on the whirlwind account of how Christianity and the gospel was turning cities upside down. And he lets us listen in on a sermon. And not just any sermon. Because the sermon we're going to be listening in on from the book of Acts is really a kind of last will and testament from the Apostle Paul as he pours out his heart to the elders at the church in Ephesus. Pours out his heart to them. And it was the church at Ephesus that Paul had spent more time with than any other church, any other group of Christians. He, he traveled different continents, different countries, but he had stayed with the church at Ephesus for three years, longer than anywhere else. And so these people are dear to him, dear to him. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. That's where you find this account. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus... Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. So that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom we've gone, I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel 
Yes, you yourselves know that, what, that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this. See, Paul was a tent, tent maker. Wherever he went, he worked another job so that he didn't have to ask the church to pay his salary. He said, I worked with my own hands. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right, before we jump into details that I hope will encourage you in how to live today and for me to live today, I want to give a big disclaimer up front. I want to give this disclaimer up front about this passage, if you're already thinking it. Most often, if you've ever heard this passage taught or preached, it's presented as a job description for elders, pastors, church leaders. Because in the context, I'll go ahead and admit, yes, he's talking to the elders at the church in Ephesus. But I don't want you to do this with this passage and say, okay, great. I hope we have some elders that are that committed. I hope we have some church leaders in our church that are that committed and that every church all over the world would get as committed as what you see in Acts chapter 20. Don't do that. And here's why. You say, why, Brad? Yes, the context, he's speaking to church leaders. But here's why. Did you know that this in Acts chapter 20 is the only sermon we have in all the book of Acts that's directed to Christians? That's right. Every other sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts, and there's some great ones, like the one we dug into in Acts 17 when he was on Mars Hill, gives us an example of how do you preach or teach to unbelievers? How do you start a conversation? What should you include? Every other sermon in the book of Acts is an evangelistic message directed to unbelievers. This is the only one to Christians. So I would never want to limit it to only church leaders. Oh yes, should church leaders lead the way and be first in demonstrating and modeling everything that Paul is talking about? But listen to me, if we're gonna see our cities turned upside down for the glory of God, it is going to have to trickle down to every believer. God's not called elders and deacons and pastors and staff people to impact our world. He's called Christ followers to impact our world. He's telling us in this passage, what it looks like to be the church and to get in on what God is doing and how to live for what matters most. So from this passage, what kind of people do we need to be? Sometimes Christians, I know you get disheartened sometimes thinking, I, we just don't see the, the impact like maybe you used to see at points in history. My answer number one is God is sovereign. God decides when there's gonna be revivals. But I tell you what, number two, is because we've got so many Christians living so safe. And Paul's gonna tell us what it looks like if you wanna be the kind of people that perhaps should God be pleased, he could work through us to see our cities turned upside down. What would it look like? I hope you noticed as I read through this passage in this sermon, it's got a whole lot of letting go. You see in this sermon letting go of the very things that our world clings to and clamors about, clings to and clamors about so much. I wanna show you some of the things that Paul highlights and says, you're gonna have to let go of this. You're gonna have to let go of this. You're gonna have to let go of this. Here's the first. Letting go of what you think is true is what gives you the courage to begin to proclaim a biblical worldview. Listen, until you push off the table, until you push off the table your own thoughts, you can't even begin to submit to and embrace the truth and word of God's word. You can't. You gotta push off the table first your own ideology and thoughts. And right here in this passage, I see two verses that show us what it looks like. Show us what it looks like to say, God, no, no, no. It's whatever you say, then that's true. Not what I think, not what I feel, not what I'm most comfortable with, not what I was taught growing up, and certainly not what is most politically correct or popular today. Because I hope you've noticed that is constantly changing and more and more at a breathtaking 
pace. Breathtaking pace. You think about it even here in America, in our own country. What was once unthinkable, not just for Christians, but Americans, let alone Christians, became thinkable, then doable, then acceptable. And I do believe we're bumping up against a very real day now and punishable as a hate crime if you will not get on board and say, it's good, it's good, yes, celebrate it, it's good. And this has happened in a breathtaking pace. Not what we think. What does God say? What does God say? Paul, I find it in two verses. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and house to house. But be careful. You may be saying, okay, so he kept back some things from God's word because it wasn't helpful. And there's things today that are not helpful. Just leave those out. They're not helpful. It's not what he means. And we know that's not what he means because you got to put verse 20 and verse 27 together. Look at verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you how much? Say it again. The whole counsel of God's word. Paul is saying all of God's word is helpful, folks. If he said it, it's helpful. Everything that he could have said, we don't have everything we'd like to know, but we've got this body of truth, the Bible, 66 books. If it's in there, it's helpful. Even if you think, ah, it's, I would not have thought of that. But think about it. There's a verse in the Old Testament. It's not in your, in your outline, but you might want to write it down. Isaiah 55, verse 10 to 11, where God says, from my thoughts, just like your thoughts. And you'll find yourself saying, I, that's what I thought anyway. Let's go ahead and do that. God's in agreement. I'm in agreement. I was leaning that way already. Here we go. This is so easy being a Christian. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are. Now, do you find some places where you're like, yes, thank goodness. But there's going to be places you're like, oh, no, I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have thought of that. Because listen to me, here's what Paul experienced as he preached to so many. And here's what's helpful about when Paul writes. Paul was not locked down into one community, one culture, one country. Paul was a missionary. He was on different continents, different countries, different cultures. And here's what Paul experienced as he lived for the Lord Jesus Christ and sought to make a difference. Paul experienced that God's word or biblical truth will always offend everyone, everywhere, at some point. It's just a question of where and when. Paul saw it over and over and over and over. There's no culture or city or nation or person that you can bring the whole counsel of God's word to them and not offend them at some point because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Because here's what will happen to you. Listen, if you're not willing to lay your thoughts aside and to submit to God's word, all of it, and embrace it, all of it, you will become an editor instead of a publisher of God's word. That word proclaim can be translated publish. Get it out there. Get it in the hands of people. Get it in the thoughts of people. Get it into the hearts of people. Publish God's word. If you know anything about books, right? There's an author who writes it. God is the author of this. There's an editor it's painful to the author. Author, Trust me, I've only written one book, but it's like, oh, you can't take that out. They'd take it out, I'd send it back with it in. They'd take it out, I'd send it back with it in. I love that sentence. Someone besides the author has to whack at it. There's an editor that tries to make it better and remove mistakes and things that aren't as clear. And then there's a publisher that gets it into the hands of people. Folks, with God's word, it's author, publisher. There is no editor. God did not call you to be an editor. If you're a Christ follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's called us to publish, to proclaim, to get it into the hands of people. Not live your life as an editor constantly saying, but let's sift it through the values of our culture today. These aren't the 50s, this is 2016. And see what makes it through. And that's what we'll still believe and talk about and promote. And we'll let some other things go because they don't make it through the grid or the filter of our culture if you're doing that, you're compromising and you're not courageous. Don't hear me saying scream all of God's word. 
but you cannot let go. Paul said, I did not hesitate. I did not shrink back. I did not shun from declaring to you how much? All. The whole counsel of God's word. If you're willing to bring all of God's word to bear on a person's life or a culture and their priorities, then you will offend them at some point. Let me help you because I hear it. Maybe you hear it also, I would think. Here's what you hear sometimes from people regarding the Bible. What? I can't believe the Bible because I find parts of it so very offensive to me. You heard that ever? Parts of it are offensive, so I can't believe the Bible. Let me give you a response to someone who says that. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest reasons we know it's God's word and was not fabricated and put together by one culture or a committee of men and women. You tracking with me? Listen, if one culture or a committee of men and women from a particular place had, had put together the Bible, would it not match everything they thought? They would be the ones that say, I love the Bible, everything about it, because we put it together. It matches what we think. You can't find that place. So you don't find, oh, it fits exactly with this culture and offends them at no point. Or that one, wherever you go, the point of offense may differ, but there'll be some offense. And it it actually is one of the biggest indicators that this is inspired by God and came to us from God and not a human committee of one particular culture. It offends everyone at some point in every culture. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you talk to a Muslim or someone from the Middle East and you start talking to them about what the Bible says about forgiveness, they find that outrageous. They find talk of forgiveness out, turn the other cheek, do not pay back, outrageous. Because it flies in the face of one of their most important cultural values of shame and honor, right? Oh, no, no, no. For the sake of your family and for their name, this flies in the face of one of their biggest cultural values. But when you talk to that same Muslim about sexual purity, one man with one woman in marriage for life, singles not having sex, don't commit adultery, Same sex is not right. They'll say, that's right. Yeah. Because that aligns with their cultural ethic as well. Now, Chuck, stay with me. You start talking to Americans today about forgiveness. Granted, it sounds radical. But as they think about it, at the end of the day, they like it and they want it. Especially, please forgive me. But when you talk to those same Americans about sexual purity and you start saying, oh, no, no, no. It's one man with one woman for life. Don't have sex before you're married. Don't have sex after you're married with someone who's not your spouse. No, they're like outrageous. How oppressive and regressive and archaic. Who do you think you are to say that marriage has to be one man and one woman in a covenant? What's that piece of paper even mean? It could be a man and two women. It could be a man and a dog and a fruit fly. It could be whatever you want. Why are you so narrow and so, who says, says who? And who are you to tell me that I can't have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want? Do you see the difference? The Muslim says, yes, sexual purity, duh, yes. The Bible offends everyone, everywhere, at some point. It's just a question of where and when. And it's one of the biggest indicators that this is inspired by God and came from God. It is not the results of a human committee from one particular culture. Isaiah himself, the prophet Isaiah 2,600 years ago, spoke to what we see happening in our country and other countries. He spoke to exactly what you see happening when he said in Isaiah chapter five, verse 20 and 21, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light, light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes 
and prudent in their own sight. Right? Just a complete reversal. We're not being called to just say, okay, okay, okay. Maybe acceptable. No, we're being called upon to say it's good. It's good. It's good. I know just 25 years ago, it didn't matter if you were a Christian or a non-Christian. We said it was bad. We said there were laws even against it. We said it was wrong, unhelpful, unloving, doesn't lead to a good life. But now all that's changed and we're supposed to change God's word to align with what they think now. Folks, here's the danger for Christians that you will allow your culture that's constantly changing to become the filter through which you'll decide what you'll still believe from the Bible. And you take everything the Bible says and you run it through the filter of our culture, especially you younger people. Listen to me. I don't mean to pick on you, but you're much more guilty of this and susceptible to it. It's just not, it's just not where we are today. It's just not, how could we, God's word hasn't changed. It breaks my heart how often I hear, I hear people who claim to know, know Christ, who say they're a Christian, just glibly and lightheartedly just say, oh, Brad, nobody waits for marriage to have sex. Everybody lives together. Everybody is sexually active. Friends with benefits. You don't even have to love them. Just sex is not that way today. Since when did Hebrews 13 fall out of the Bible? The marriage bed is undefiled. That's a, a nice, polite way of saying sex in that place with husband and wife in a covenant of marriage is good. But fornicators, God will judge. I don't want to be under the judgment of God. Don't go run around as a Christian and say, but that part, I've just let that go. We don't do that anymore. Marriage. I hear Christians like give counsel, women giving other women or men giving other men horrible counsels. Like if you're not happy in that marriage, I get a divorce. And here's the rationale. Oh, God is a good God. He's a loving God. He wouldn't want you that unhappy. You're not happy. It's not your dream. It's not everything you'd hoped. It's not just hit the exit door with a divorce. And yet Malachi 3 says, God says, I hate divorce. Now, don't hear me saying God hates you. We're all sinners. But listen, and my heart goes out to those of you who have been through a divorce and it wasn't your desire. But we cannot just say, oh, no big deal on that anymore. Marriage was meant to be one, oneness for life and a billboard of Jesus and his church. It is heartbreaking and horrible how marriages are just tossed aside left and right. And when the church of Jesus Christ begins to sleep around and just toss marriages aside like the world, then you know we have been seduced and we are compromising. When the patterns of the world seem normal to us and God's word seems odd and foreign we've been seduced I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of, now don't hear me say screaming please declare it lovingly calmly no veins standing out on your neck no slurs not calling them by, by horrible names but loving them enough to still be willing to say and, and be willing to be hated they may not like you They may not do coffee again to say, this won't help you. This will not lead to life. This will not go well. This is not good. Listen to what God's word says. He knows he's, he's wise. He created us. The reformer, Martin Luther, and here's what we're up against. I want you to get this. The reformer, Martin Luther said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not professing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Folks, we cannot flinch at the point of sexuality, gender, marriage. That's where the battle rages today. I'm not saying there's no more battle over evolution and and creationism, but that's not what is so hot. So if this is the one that you just remain silent and say, but I'm not going to say anything there because it's just such a hot. That is where we must speak. 
If you flinch, you're not being loyal and courageous for the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest challenge we face in the days ahead, folks, is not just persecution. I do think there's going to be more persecution, but seduction, where Christians are just going to water down God's word because you're just tired of being so odd, so strange. Do we have to disagree on so many things? I'm just exhausted. I feel so awkward at neighborhood cookouts, at work, at the gym, everywhere I go. It's exhausting. I feel like I don't belong. Hello. Good. It's how we should have felt all along. And now we do. And it just may cause you to long for home more. We've had Christians that have been too comfortable for too long. Now we get to feel very uncomfortable, which can help you hold more loosely to the things of this world and live for what matters most. Paul said, I did not hesitate or shrink back from proclaiming the whole council. Second thing he says you got to let go of, if you're going to make a difference, letting go of promoting yourself is what leads to the humility of resting in Christ. Do you know what one of the most exhausting things is we face today? And it's just, it's just huge. It's always been a problem for us. We've always struggled with pride as human beings. Pride has always been one of those root feeder sins that dies the slowest and comes back to life the quickest when you thought it was dead. And it's a chameleon that shows up in numerous ways in your life. But here's what I think is horrible. We just happen to live in a day that gives you so many more ways to promote yourself with social media and such. Oh my goodness. Letting go of promoting yourself. You know what one of the most exhausting things is? Constantly being so concerned about what everybody thinks about you, how they perceive you, whether they accept you, whether they like you. Don't hear me saying, wake up and say, it's my goal today to offend and to lose friends. I'm not saying that, but just, you just keep believing what, what God calls us to believe and you keep living rather than finger in the wind. How many friends do I have? What's everybody think about me? How do they perceive me? It's exhausting. And it siphons off some of your best energies and thoughts that could have been directed towards living for what matters most. I would say it to you this way. You won't start living for what matters most until you stop living for the little kingdom of self. Those two things are mutually exclusive, my friends, and exhausting. That little kingdom of self, the air is bad in there. Windows are shut tight. You smell your own stench. You think, why does this smell so bad? It's you. It's too much of you. Throw some windows open. Get out of there. God never intended to be all about you. I want you to look at something from verse 19 that is not flashy, but it is essential if you want to make an impact. Six words he leads out with from verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord. You're not promoting yourself. It's not about your brand. It's not serving the Lord with all humility. I think it's interesting. That word humility is used 200 times in the New Testament. But right here, I love it because notice how he puts it. It's, you can hear when he says serving the Lord with all Humility, it indicates this needs to be something that just encompasses and wrapped around everything you do and how you do it. This can't be one of those virtues that, oh, by the way, I've got this and this and this and this going on. Let's make sure there's a little humility on the side of the plate there, like parsley, just as a decoration. Or a little spice that's just added a dash of humility to keep us biblical. With all humility. With all, see, listen to me. It doesn't matter how much you do or how gifted you are to do it. If there's too much of you in it, you won't see it turn the cities upside down. You won't see it impact people. You can't promote you and Jesus at the same time. For Jesus to loom large, you and I have to lay low and stay low. Lay low and stay low. I wish I could tell you this is a one and done kind of thing. It's not. Lay low and then stay low. Do whatever you can to be working on this. Because it can't just be a dash of this on the side like some spike. Think about it this way. Our humility needs to be like curry. You ever eat a dish and say, 
Is that curry? Is there some curry? No, it's like curry. I taste curry. It takes over the dish. I do happen to like curry. It takes over the dish. It takes over your breath for days. It takes over. And no one says, was that curry? It's like the home reeks of curry. The carpet has been curried. The couch is curried. You are curried. Throw those clothes away. Right? It's it's curry. Our humility needs to be like that. That it wouldn't just be, oh, and maybe is there, do I, do I smell a little humility? No. It's like with all humility. Now, so I memorize scripture about this. I pray about this. Let me give you one of my favorite passages I've memorized to keep working on this. It's not actually the passage we're in. Right here in verse 19, the word serving is the word doulos. just means slave. Good word. But the passage I've memorized gives me a word picture that I hope I'll never get over. It has gripped me for years now, and I just stay with it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Same author. Or or no, Luke was writing Acts, but about the same guy. Paul's writing saying, so then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. It's not the word doulos. It's the word huperetes that means a slave on a big galley ship below deck rowing. Isn't that a good word picture? The guy can't even see what's going on above. Not on center stage. Not in control, not calling the shots, doesn't even know where we're going, just rowing. The word means under rower. And so this helps me because I always think I want Jesus on deck, Jesus on deck, Jesus center stage. God, I'll, I'll just row. I don't have to know the details and I don't want people to walk away and think about me, Jesus. Folks, for Jesus to loom large, we've got to... Get low and stay low with all humility. And that leads right into my next point because unless you've got this going on with all humility, you'll never see this next one kick in that is so essential for making an impact. Letting go of your need to look strong and have it all together is what frees your heart to add tears to your truth. If you're still busy trying to look strong and it's all about image and you don't want to look weak and you don't want to look like you don't have it all together, this will never kick in. Add tears to your truth. I hope you understand without adding tears to your truth, we will not see the kind of impact that I'm longing for and that we saw in the book of Acts. As much as this passage soars with the courage to not compromise God's word, and I hope you won't, it also sorrows It sorrows. It doesn't just soar with courage. It sorrows with compassion, truth, and tears. We got too many Christians that think as long as I'm on spot on with truth, I can scream it. I can bark it. I can yell it. I can slam it into people. It's God's word. Hallelujah. Changing lives. Yeah. Making it harder for the next real Christian to even talk to them is what you're doing. And causing them to harden. And you're giving them the excuse to go on thinking what they already thought. Don't do that. Truth and tears. Oh, this is a courageous passage, no doubt. But it is a weepy passage. No less than three times tears are mentioned. Look at it in verse 19. With all humility and many tears. Tears. Look at verse 31. Remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day. And that word warn is strong. So please know, once we have a softness and we add tears and we're compassionate, it does not mean we back off on truth. The word warn right there is nutheteo, that means to exhort, to warn, to come alongside, to bring truth. But you come alongside and you bring it with a broken heart and a compassion and a concern and a care. Not anger, not harshness. Look at verse 37. They all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. It's a weepy passage as well as a courageous passage. You say, Brad, what's your point? Why does it matter? When you let go of the exhausting endeavor of promoting yourself and trying to make sure you look like you have it all together, then you can stop living so guarded 
And you can experience the release of emotions that goes along with ministry. There should be emotion. Never mind Paul. We could go to our Savior Jesus. He was not some cold, sterile, stoic, mechanical truth bearer. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, even though he'd been beaten, even though he'd been done wrong by people, you just, along with great theologian and seasoned missionary, you just still see a tenderness. He had not developed the hide of a rhinoceros to where I'm still happy to bring truth, but I hate people. I am so sick of people. I keep praying that God will do the same for me. Good news, so far I don't hate you. But I've been a pastor 30 years, folks, and I see it happen. Men and women and pastor's wives who still hold to truth, they've just had it with people. And we understand why, right? We can't let that happen. We cannot let that happen. Not only Paul had tears, our Savior. Here's Luke bringing us the tears of Paul in Acts. But we already know that Luke, when he wrote his first letter, the Gospel of Luke showed us the tears of our Savior. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city. A city, Jerusalem, that had rejected him. A city that had been so cruel to him. A city that, this is not a city that was easy to love, folks. And wept over it. Wept over it. When you see the cities we're living in today, right here, all around us, in the cities that you visit, in the fr- cities you have friends in, the cities you hear about in the news that are racked with heroin, heroin overdoses and addictions, poverty and shattered families and confusion and child abuse and sexual abuse and sexual slavery. And do you weep at all or have you lost the ability to weep and you're just filled with disdain and disgust? Ask God to wet your truth again with your tears. Truth and tears is what will make the big... You say, but Brad, it's not just broken people when we see it. There are people attacking us and railing against us. Oh, listen, I know. And even there, Paul added tears. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, 19, he says, for many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now I tell you, even weeping that they are enemies of the cross. There were enemies of the cross then. There are enemies now, but we cannot rail against them as enemies. Tears. They're trapped, folks. They're in darkness. They're enslaved by our enemy, just like you were from the womb until God rescued you, saved you, opened your eyes, took out a heart of stone. They're trapped, they're enslaved, they're ensnared. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and they've set their mind on earthly things. Does that not sound like some of our worst opponents today? And Paul said, there are many enemies of the cross. I tell you, again, even weeping. Let's weep over these people, even if they attack us. But let me point out something else precious in this passage. He says, let go of what you think is true so that you can promote a biblical worldview and not get in the way. Let go of promoting yourself so you can begin to rest in the humility and security of Christ. Look at something else. This starts to happen. Yes, if you go hard after Jesus Christ, all out, all in, no holding back, you'll be attacked. You'll be mocked. You'll make some enemies. Oh, but here's something sweet. You also, you also will begin to forge some of the best friendships that are beyond what our world knows about. Letting go of your own petty plans and living for what matters most is what forges friendships like our world knows nothing about. That's what you see happening at the end of this chapter. Those last three verses are putting on display exactly what I'm pointing out. Look at it again in verse 36. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words that he had spoken, that they would see his face no more. 
Here's the deal, folks. If you have truth and you have convictions about something, and Christians should, and you're not trying to just promote yourself an image and always look like you have it together and you're willing to be transparent and vulnerable and share your heart and lay it on the line and be honest, this starts to happen. You can forge some of the strongest friendships. Because get this, friendship is the result of not pursuing friendship as a standalone end of itself. Some of you need to get that. We live in a day where I know the world is so disjointed. We move at such a pace. It's so superficial. Oh, yeah, you got all these friends on Facebook. They're not your friend, right? So people are starved for real friendship, right? But here's what happens. I need a friend. Be my friend. Best friend. People are running, running. And then if they decide, okay, kind of needy, I'll give it a chance. And then you're like, just like the person that's in the ocean, someone jumps in to help them and you're just, you take them down with them. You're like, whoo, hope you find one, but it's not me. I can't deal with this. You know what's going on? It's like you are looking for someone to be it all for you. You're supposed to find your greatest needs and satisfaction in Jesus. And here's what happens. Listen, I never meant to have friends. Hope that doesn't sound terrible. I've just always been about something. And oh, by the way, at 53 now, I'm like, oh my goodness, I have some friends. I have dear friends. I have friends I would give my life for. I'm friends that I don't see them for 18 months or two years. And when we get together, it's like, bam, our friendship is based on, we both share conviction about, about something dear to us. We're both sacrificing in similar ways for a similar cause and friendship grew in that context. Does that make sense? Oh my goodness, listen to me. I feel so bad for so many of you young people today and some even older people. Friendships, real friendships aren't built around a hundred stupid, stupid video clips that you shared. Oh, it's hilarious. You see that? And I jumped off the wall and then I ate that. And you, yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Right? That, that seems to be the only thing that friendship is based on. We're both doing really stupid things and watching each other's video. This is so funny, dude. Oh, dude. Oh, dude. This is so sad. You want real friends? Get real serious about living for something that matters. Pursue it and you'll find some others. All of a sudden you'll look and say, you too? You too? Yeah. Uh, C.S. Lewis, as only Lewis can do, says, genuine friendship is based on two people who are not self-absorbed, but are kneeling before the same thing. Now, out in the world, that same thing could be rebuilding Mustang cars. Like, you too? Yay. So I'm not saying it can't happen anywhere else, but Christians are kneeling before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christians have the potential. Don't hear me saying it's automatic. The potential to have some of the best friendships wherever they go. I hope you've tasted some of this. That like, we moved to Texas and it doesn't take us any time. You meet a Christian at the playground or in the grocery store. There's just this affinity and quickness and ability to be close because we share a common body of convictions. If you'll be open and honest and stop guarding yourself, could you get hurt? Sure. But you could also have dear friends. We experienced this to some degree even here with small groups. For 20 years, I've just broken my heart over and over and over and over for the kingdom. It's why we don't want our groups to huddle up. And for 20 years, right now, I could still be with Pat and Pam Glenn and Dick and Peg Gottrod, right? With inside jokes galore, so tight, but only those 16 people. Vicki and I have birthed our group and it hurts so bad. We birthed our group again and it hurts so bad. We birthed our group again. When we birthed Nick and Kimmy, Nick and Kimmy, Nick and Annie Kemphouse a few years ago, and Jen and Avery were in there and Clint and Bev Greenwood. We love them dearly. And then we birth them away. I don't see them like I used. They're not in my home anymore. We just did it again last week and we birthed to Ryan and Julie. Who becomes your apprentice that could lead a group? The person you love the most. You don't send a loser. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't miss you at all. Let's birth to you. No one wants to go to, with that person. The very one you love the most. And you think, man, they love Jesus. Vicky and I feel so comfortable with them. We both have hearts for the Lord. We're both laying it on the line. We're both 
that's who I send and lose. And now I won't see them like I used to. And Joel, and, and I want to send people with them to get traction so it'll be good. And again, not just the island of the misfit toys. Let's send all and keep our favorites. So I sent Joel Briggs, whom I love. And I sent Ronnie, who I love. And they won't be in my living room anymore. That's hard. Friendship is forged in the midst of living for what matters most. You think even on a level like soldiers, right? Give you this illustration. When men and women go active duty, right? I'm not saying just if you're in the military, this happens. You go active duty. They go overseas, whether it's Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraq. It doesn't matter where because the same thing happens. We are threatened. We face risk. We're similar cause. And I'm telling you what, when they come stateside, who is it they feel closer to than even their biological families? And they, feel, they struggle to come back in and transition in because like, these are not the people that are my dear brothers and sisters now. It's these that we went through this together and it's that way for life. We got too many people today, listen, who believe nothing and risk nothing but want great friends. It's not gonna happen. You start believing something, you start risking something, and you'll find people around you that believe it and are risking, and you'll find friendship along the way. Let me show you one more. That Paul says you gotta let go of this. Letting go of protecting your life will change what danger looks like. You say, what? Don't hear me saying now there'll be no more danger because when God sees you're serious, he just pushes back all threat and danger and just cushes your life. No, 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 no. You see it, but you see it differently. You perceive it differently. Look at how, look at how Paul lived this out. Look at verse 22. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Now, listen, he doesn't know the details, but the Holy Spirit actually puts him in the ballpark and says, Except for this, that in every city so far, the Spirit has testified that chains and tribulations await me. Really? But none of this moves me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. It changes, folks. Don't hear me say, there's times I still get scared and think, I think I'm going to go to jail soon, depending on who gets elected next, probably even sooner, for preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's word. I have fear will sweep through me some. But folks, when you've already let go of your life and you're like, I want to live for what matters most, it, it doesn't have the same effect on you. It changes how you see danger so that you're still willing to walk into it if it's for the cause of Christ. You're, if he's called you there, you know. He's take, the safest place in the world to be is where God has called you to be. You may be surrounded by unrest and unanswered questions, but that's the safest place to be, right where God has called you. See, when your main concern stops being preserving and protecting your life, you stop needing to know details about tomorrow. Because I know who does. All I need is the next steps. Just show me enough light on the path to know the next step you want me to take. I'll leave details up to you, God. Now listen. Some of you struggle with anxiety and fear horribly. And you consider this. You don't need another verse that says, do not worry. You say, I memorized what I'm trying. You know what? Perhaps you haven't considered enough. When you let go of your life and your modus operandi stops being protect and preserve, protect and preserve, all of a sudden, you don't see danger the same way. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear. You're still counting your life dear to yourself. And here's something else that kicks in that I love, that I want. I hope you want it. When you let go of protecting and preserving your life, it's the main thing that I'm about. Two things also, it greatly increases the chance that two other things can happen that I so want. And you see it in verse 24. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that, whenever you see those two words, so that, it means that's a purpose clause. He's going to tell you, if you do this, these things follow. When you stop counting your life dear to yourself, so that I may finish my race with joy. 
I want to finish well. I want to finish well. I really don't care whatever else you remember about me. I don't want to be that guy because there's so many of them, right? Who, oh, remember Brad Bigney when? And it ended in calamity. All the way to the crusty little shuffling end when I make no sense. At least I want you to know he loves Jesus. He's still with his first wife and he loves Jesus. He's still with his first wife and he didn't go heretic on it. He, he didn't do something heinous and immoral. I want to finish well and more. I want to finish with joy. That, you may, that I may finish my race. With you see people finish and they still held on to truth. But ooh, they're caustic, bitter. I don't know when they laughed last, right? Joy's gone. That I may finish my race. You know what keeps so many people from finishing well and finishing with joy is it's because you're so concerned about you. And that means when, when your life is dear to you, you take offense at, at whatever happens to you, what people do to you or don't do to you. And you keep a record and it's exhausting and joy's out the window. When it's like, my life is not my own. My life is not my own and I'm in Christ and he loves me. It's much more likely you can finish not being bitter and angry, caustic and sour. The more you spend time with Christ, the more you spend time with Christ, the more convinced you should be that he will take care of you. Now, let me help you and I'm gonna close on this. The answer for anxiety and fear and uh, is not if someone would just show me more. If, if someone would give me a word from the Lord, if I had a crystal ball, I would feel so much better. Folks, the answer for anxiety and fear and holding on to your life so much is not ahead, it's behind. It's a history. It's Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes back. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That God that gave his son for you, that took wrath for you, that gave you a robe of righteousness, that forgave you every sin, that gave you an inheritance, that gave you direct access to the throne day and night. That God that did all that and solved your biggest problem. How shall he not also with Jesus freely give you all things? Whatever you need tomorrow, he's promised. And you say, how do I know? If he would do that then... He'll take care of you now. Now, the more you spend time with Jesus, the more convinced you should be, he's gonna take care of me. Therefore, I can move forward without holding on to my life. And the more you spend time with Jesus, I hope he will add tears to your truth, courage and compassion. Oh, how I'd love to see our cities turned upside down, but it's only gonna happen with tears and truth. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to grope around and say, oh man, I wish we had some idea, a strategy. What do we need to do to reach people today? How would we impact a dark, twisted day like this? You tell us and you've given us your spirit and you've given us each other and you've given us your word and you've given us direct access to your throne. God, thank you. Help us more and more to be able to say like Paul, but none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. We pray in Jesus' name.